Thank you for tuning in to The Trisha Goyer Show. I'm sharing my heart and answering questions about faith, writing, homeschool, big family living, and so much more. I'll also be digging deep into meaningful conversations with other authors, speakers, moms, and God lovers. I'm your host, Trisha Goyer, wife to John, mom of 10, author of over 80 books, speaker, homeschooler, avid reader, and mega nap taker. I'm so glad you're here. FBI Special Agent Grace Billingsley tracks serial killers using her skills as a psychiatrist and behavioral analyst to get dangerous people off the street and safely behind bars. But prison psychiatrist Sam Monroe knows that just because a killer is incarcerated doesn't mean they're not a threat. His own father, Peter, is a serial killer in prison, but certainly not out of Sam's life as much as he wishes he was. When bodies start showing up with startling similarities to Peter's M.O., Sam and Grace are both called in to consult. They will need to learn to trust each other to solve this case, especially because it's about to get personal. Check out Critical Threat by Lynette Eason. Well, friends, I am so excited to have two amazing men with me today talking about their book, Not So Black and White. So we have Reggie Dabbs and John Driver here today. Welcome, both of you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, exciting. Oh, I am so excited about this book. And the subtitle is An Invitation to Honest Conversations About Race and Faith. And so I would just love one of you to share why you knew that this is the book you wanted to write at this time. Well, uh, you know, Reggie and I wanted, we've done, this is our third book together in some form or fashion, and Reggie wanted us to write a children's book next, <laughs> and we missed that one by a country mile. Uh, <laughs> so um, it really it really started, you know, we've been friends for, for 20 years, um, and, and they've done a lot of different things together, and really after the death of George Floyd, mm-hmm. uh, as a white pastor and someone who had been sort of moving into new areas of um, awareness about issues that I, that, and I was a history teacher as well. So I think there were some assumptions I was making and, and you and I, Trisha, were talking before we got on here about, you know, I'm a nineties kid. So sort of a, a colorblind towards racism approach of, Hey, you know, let's not, let's not pay too much attention to race or that accents it in the wrong way. And, and the, the George Floyd murder really, caused me to realize that there is a, there's a problem that I'm not affecting. And so one of the first things I did, um, what, besides order a lot of books and, and cry and realize that I've been on the sidelines too long of talking about this as a pastor and just as a friend, as I called my buddy Reggie and uh, began having conversations. And that's really the genesis of the book, those conversations. I love it. And the whole thing is about having conversations. Now, Reggie, I was telling John that I grew up in California. We had a very diverse school. There's 200 kids, but there is, you know, quarter black, quarter Hispanic. There's Italians and Laotians and white. And so we were all just friends and lived by each other. And that was the world I grew up in. And then we moved to Little Rock, Arkansas in 2010. And I was like, where am I? Why is there black churches and white churches? And I mean, I was, I was such in shock of this. So I would just love for maybe those who were like me, um, that just think that this really isn't a problem that everyone, you know, what, 
what would you like to share and why it's so important to have these conversations? Well, I'll just uh, let you know the way I answered John when he called me and I asked him because I knew he, his daughter and I have a son. Uh, my son's older, but I said, your daughter's about to drive. And uh, what's mm-hmm. the first thing you do when you get in the car with your daughter? What's the first thing you're going to tell her when she's behind the driver's seat? A lot of people are like, you know, fasten your seatbelt, adjust the seat, adjust the mirrors. Uh, I said, no, the first thing I told my son was take your wallet out of your back pocket and put it on the console or in the cup mm-hmm. holder so that when you get pulled over, you won't get shot reaching for your driver's license. And, uh, and that's something that a lot of people will never, ever have to say to their child. But yet still, it's a reality on our side of the fence, if you want to say it like that. Yeah, absolutely. And there was just in yesterday, um, the day we're recording this, there was just a shooting yesterday of a young black man was pulled over for a traffic stop and was shot and killed. And the footage is horrific. And moving to Little Rock, I remember... We, we went to a multi-ethnic church for many years, and they talked about how many of you have ever been pulled over and were completely scared for your life. And all these men, our elders and pastors, all these wonderful Christian men stood up, and it was this eye-opening experience. It's like, this is something I've never had to even think about. Like, I'm telling my kids, put on your seatbelt and don't speed. <laughs> you know. So, um, And I think that so many of us don't even realize that this is going on. And so when you started having these conversations, um, did you find like, I don't know, John, did you think of like, I'm worried of what I'm going to say, or I don't want to offend Reggie. Do you have those types of thoughts when you first start having these conversations? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and I I asked a lot of um, questions for permission of what we can talk about or not Mm -hmm. tried to be sensitive to where he was and, you know, also made it clear, like, hey, man, it's not like, look, and, and we want to be clear about the book. It does lead towards conversations, but that's not where it ends. Uh, the conversations led us through a lot of history, a lot of study mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, through the church, through you know, all the way back to the slave trade. I mean, and there needs to be a, a multifaceted approach and a balance to that because there's one con- one conversation with Reggie. He doesn't have to to explain to all the white people of the world, all of these things. And, right. and neither does he have the pressure to speak for all the black people of the world. Um, you know, but since the relationship was already there, it made sense to be a place to start and, and, and really a place of, and this is a hard thing I know right now. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of vitriol over these kinds of things I'm about to say, but from a, a Christian perspective, it made sense for me to repent to him, not because I had done something wrong to him, but because I had never uh, tried to empathize or even ask where he had been. Mm-hmm. So, so two books written together, 20 years of friendship, we never had had a conversation about this. And I, I probably thought with my good intentions that, you know, I was just you know not acknowledging something painful for him or, 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 or honestly assuming it wasn't that painful for him. And the stories he began to share, which he doesn't share a lot because no one really ever asks, <laughs> um, you know, it made it very clear that, wow, I've not been with you, man. Um, and, and what, what you're struggling with and what, you know, black communities are facing right now with, with what they're seeing on the news and what they've experienced in life. We in the white church are, I mean, man, I've just been sitting here watching, uh, and maybe even not watching. I had the, and this is another, again, hot button term. I've had the privilege that it doesn't have to affect me which is the very definition of privilege in many ways. You know, I can, I can choose to engage this or not engage this, 
and I want to be more engaged. I don't want to fix it. I'm not the white savior. I'm not trying to to to, to change it all or or make uh, you know me the the centerpiece or the protagonist of some story or hero. What I mean is, hey, you're in this fight. How can I help? How can I stand with you and and be supportive and not just sit on the sidelines and watch? Yeah. I love that. And I would love to hear the answer to that, Reggie, because John's saying, like, what can I do? And I know he asked you these questions. What did you tell John when you started this and and were able to finally say, yeah, this is what I've been feeling. This is what I've been struggling with. Um, What things were you able to share and that you wanted him to know? I think the best thing was that he asked. Mm -hmm. I mean, all your life you grow up and your friends went multi-ethnic, like even you, you probably have a Hispanic friends, mm-hmm. black friends, but to get in a, a conversation where you're comfortable enough to ask, that's pretty special that we had built a bridge, a relationship that uh, that he's able to ask and I'm able to answer those questions. So that's, that's number one. Number two, and I love the way John puts it in the book, we're asking a question at the very beginning. And the question is, when was the last time you changed your mind about something? You know, to be willing to put down all your own preconceived, I'm this, I'm that, and instead just go, how did we get here? Because we are the United States of America. We are the human race. And, you know, since we're all human race, then whether you're a part of the problem or the solution, we have to sit at the table and figure out what we're going to do next. So I just think it's awesome that John, you know, it was cool just to be able to open up to somebody not knowing that they're going to say, well, I'm not that guy. He never right. said that. And I think that's cool. Right. And I think, like, I love what John said is he never really had to think about it. <laughs> but now that yeah. he is thinking about it, that he was, he wanted to come to you and he wanted to hear about it. And I love that the book talks about a lot of history um, because we moved to Little Rock, Arkansas in 2010. I had never heard about the Little Rock Nine. Um, which for those who are not familiar with it, where nine, nine black students were allowed in 1957 to go into Central High School here in Little Rock. Um, and they were basically the National Guard was sent by the governor of Arkansas to keep those students out of the high school. So even though on a national level, they had every right to be in the white high school, the uh, Arkansas National Guard stopped them. And I remember we went to, there's a little museum here that's at Central High School. I was walking around and I'm like 40 years old at the time. And I'm like, I have never even heard of this um, and realized like this is recent history. And I think so many times we think there's way in the past. These things are happening. But then people I met, people that I went to church with, um, they're telling me the stories. And this is not ancient history, is it? But I think it helps to know history um, to be able to understand what is going on now. So Reggie, why wasn't why is it important for us to know this history and you know why did you want to have this in the book so that we can understand better you know if if without a past we never can really have a future Mm -hmm. and so and to get something you've never had you have to do something you've never done Mm -hmm. so to be able to look at the past even if it's something that you want to turn the page real fast it's something we haven't really done but we're doing now So maybe we're doing something now that could change it for the future for our kids and our children's children. So I think it's process, even me and John writing a book like this. I mean, come on, he's right. We were going to do a children's book. But but for us to do this is our part 
for the human race saying, we're going to do something we've never done to hopefully get to where we've never been with the race issue. Yeah. So what were the, some of the conversations as you're working on writing the book? Um, what did you want to make sure that you got across to the reader? Because, you know, we're always knowing that the reader's on the other side of this book. What did what were your hopes that they walk away with after they've read um, Not So Black and White? Well, you know, the approach was the hard part, and it remains the hard part of this conversation because of the polarization of society. We, we have this sort of death of dialogue, sort of this, it's all right or it's all wrong. There's very little nuance in between. And so the, the very first few chapters, we knew we really have to deal with that from a Christian perspective. And so we, we even though the book is for anyone, really, really is for anyone, and then they can access it. In fact, if someone is not a part of church or part of, of believe, you know, a believing body, and they're watching all this from the outside, it's a fascinating glimpse of believers trying to have conversations with believers about these things, you know, instead of just, you know, throwing rocks at it. And we, we realized the landmines were just everywhere, because you can't, <laughs> anyone right now, there's a lot of people like us who are, who are you know, preachers and uh, pastors and man, we're being called leftists and Marxists and all kinds of really scary words that really don't define us at all. But it, it's easy to throw any of these conversations into this sort of boogeyman side of the equation. And so we wanted to create a safe bridge. Like, hey, that's why you know, as Reggie said, guys, it's you're not going to burst into flames of liberalism if you were to read a book by two pastors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know about maybe some perspectives you haven't been hearing because both sides of the media are weaponizing this to get mm -hmm. your vote or your money or your, you know, your fear on their side. So, you know, what if we all just took a breath and we explored in the gospel, what does the gospel say about the disposition of a believer towards, towards any topic, especially towards other believers? And in my case, I mean, I have black brothers and sisters now sharing things with me you know, as fellow believers, how do I respond to them? And so we went into, you know, the woman at the well, went into the food distribution program with, in Acts chapter six and really began to just dive into, hey, this reasonable, um, this, this ability to reason, this gentle response as not some sort of tone police reaction, but like a compelling biblical imperative that this is how we're supposed to respond that even if we think we're saying the right things, when we say them outside of the disposition of Christ, then we're we're not where we should be. We're misaligned. And of course, that then, once we feel like that's a, a disarming moment where, okay, I'm now willing to maybe hear things I haven't heard before, then we take off in an inventory of racism in America. With But if you can't do the first part, it's hard to get to the second. It'd be overwhelming to jump right into that. So it's really a, a, a two-pronged approach of, hey, Deal with the way you think. You know, examine it. It's it, it's good. There's a lot of recovery principles, twelve step recovery principles, because I've you know been through that process and a lot of honesty, a lot of conversation of what the gospel really means, what I think the gospel means, and what I think I believe about the gospel versus what I'm functionally doing with the gospel in these areas and other areas. You know, getting past and, and we do a lot of the a lot of the insults we call them, Tricia, and that's the the things that if you just say this word. People are insulted. They, they literally have not had a conversation yet. They're just immediately mm -hmm. insulted. And so, hey, let's let's really deconstruct where those insults are coming from. And let's try to remove the stingers and the fire from it a little bit. 
and, and kind of sit with it in a safe place. Yeah. And I love that the safe place is relationship. Um, yeah. You know, when we moved to Little Rock and I started building friendships, um, people older than me, people younger than me, different races, once we're comfortable as friends, then these conversations naturally came up. I remember talking to one of my friends, Jan, and she was talking about um, she was making beans and pig's feet for New Year's. And I'm like, I've never eaten that. She's like, of course you didn't. It's slave food. This is what I'm eating. <laughs> for, for us to be at that relationship level that yeah. she can say that to me and, you know, we're out to lunch. And I just realized, like, I'm so thankful that we are at that relationship that we can just, she's like, of course you didn't eat that. Um, and I just love her to pieces, but it is just like you two sitting down. It was me and Jan getting to know each other over many months, volunteering together at church, spending time together that we're able to have these conversations. Um, so Reggie, you know, the whole thing is about conversation. So why do you think it is important to just build these friendships that can lead to these very honest conversations? I believe it's just living life together, Mm -hmm. uh, being comfortable, not only in your own skin, but being comfortable in the surroundings, which is other people around you. I believe if we take time and make time, then the world becomes a, a, not only a smaller place, but more come, becomes more family. I like to say people all the time, when we start a conversation, I'm a stranger, but by the time we're done, I should be Uncle Reggie, you know? Mm-hmm. So so let's just do that in every situation, every person that we come to. And, and almost it's like, and recently I've done a, we've redone our public speaking. I do a lot of public schools and we're, we're hitting a certain area where after Will Smith did what happened on television, mm-hmm. every, a lot of kids are asking me, why did that happen? And I simply said, sometimes it's easier to fight than it is to be sad. But sometimes we have to give people opportunity and room to be sad so that they can 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 get better. And so in our even in racism, you know, sometimes it's easier to fight than to just be sad. But in talking and relationships and the books that we're writing and and spending time, we're literally giving people that opportunity to take a deep breath and say, okay, yeah, I lost. Yeah, I, I have hurt. Yes, I have sorrow. And But together we can make it better. When you understand why someone's angry, then you can deal with them. We just got to be able to give ourselves time to find out the why. Oh, that is so good. So we've, uh, my husband and I have adopted seven children. Um, Six of them from foster care. We have 10 total, seven children, five are still at home. But that's what I learned in training for foster kids. And I even wrote a book about helping to calm kids for anger is sometimes mad is sad. Sometimes Mm -hmm. mad is anxious. Sometimes mad is, you know, there's all these other emotions and it shows itself as angry and mad. And I love that you were saying that. Um, we don't give people a chance to be sad or really uh, take time to understand their sadness or understand their pain. And then we just point fingers when they're mad. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Reggie, I would love to hear when you're going into schools, um, just what you feel like is the core of what you want to share with those students and then what their response is. Uh, the core is hope. Every kid mm. needs to know to have hope. And, um, uh, for you, you just need to know the basis is my story. Uh, my mom gave me away to her favorite teacher at school when I was born. So I was raised by my mom's English teacher and grew up in the foster care system almost my whole life. Oh, wow. So what you and your husband are doing for the young people who are in your home, 
Uh, I could not thank you enough for what you guys are doing. So just thank you for doing that. But my mom kept my brother and two of my sisters, and I'm the only one that she gave away because oh, she wow. said that I was a mistake and she wished I'd never been born. And that's a lot to get over and to get through. But there was a time in my early teens, I'm 13, I'm crying in my bed and my foster care dad walked in my bedroom and told me that he loved me. That's what we're trying to do with this book, me and John, is just to walk into someone's bedroom who's who you know is trying to figure out the world, trying to figure out racism, trying to figure out how do I do this and just let them know that we got you, we love you and you can make it and we can make it together. Uh, everyone needs someone sleeping at their door. So I just want to thank you for sleeping at those kids' doors that you raised and you're raising now. And our thing is during the time of an assembly program, I'm just sitting at their door, every kid in the program. And I, I even say it, I say, I'm sitting by your door and I just came to tell you, I love you. Cause if I can make it, you can make it too. Oh, that is so good. And I, I think, I mean, I bet you could just even see the difference in their continence and their face and their, the hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. I think it is so overwhelming to see all the conflict and not know what to do about it. Yeah, true. So as we're you know talking about having these conversations, what encouragement would you have for someone like me that maybe has some friends that, you know, we go to coffee, we you know meet at the park, but we've never gone and had deeper conversations. What encouragement would you have for us? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, you know, there, there is no arrival point here. And I think that's what people really want. They, the conversation right now, you hear a lot of rhetoric that says um, anyone concerned about racism or social justice is calling all white people racist. Mm. <laughs> and I have, not, I have not heard anybody actually say that, but I hear a lot even from religious conservative sides where they're telling people that like you're talking about that that's what you're being indicted for or accused of. And I think that if we remove like, Hey, the goal here is not to put people in a racist camp or into, Hey, now you're not racist. Uh, those, those labels are, are really not super helpful here for most people. And there is such a thing as a racist and those things. I, I, I get it. But that's not really what we're out to do in the book. And it's not like you read a book or have a conversation. And you're saying like, cool, I'm there. Um, you know, I'm in a journey uh, with my friends and I have a history as, as well. And, you know, I think we just want to encourage people start taking a legitimate journey and, and if possible with someone, but it won't be enough to just, I think, just have relationships. And this is not a just a pitch of a book. We literally wrote this book for people who want to know what the first step is and they yes. need to stay yeah. a safe place to take that step where they're not going to be called a racist. They're going to they're going to kind of be able to unpack in the pages sitting with us. Hey, this this is what the, the feelings are that we're hearing from people just like you. And um, so make some connections. But you might read some things before even you make some connections because you could you could do harm and offense mm. if you're not approaching with a little bit of education, there's a lot of people and a lot of black authors who will say, Hey, I'd, I'd rather you, I'd rather you go read the book that I wrote and then want to come talk to me about my experience instead of having me. It's, it's exhausting to have to just continually over, you know, I've, I've done all this work to put this story out and take the time to honor those stories, take the time to honor that history and that research, bring yourself up to speed somewhat so that when you engage, 
you're, you're not just asking someone to start from zero. You're saying, hey, I'm, I've walked some distance to get to you because I care about where you are on this journey. Yeah, I love that. And you have at the end, um, near the end of the book, it says steps for individuals, um, study history about slavery and racism in the United States, um, you know, follow black authors, theologians, historians, and activists on social media. Um, you know, re- and then I love, like you talk about, you know, visit museums, but your book covers so much history. So I always recommend The Warmth of Other Suns is an excellent mm-hmm. book. And then this is going to be the one I'm recommending right with it. Because I think you cover so much history and so much um, just, and then also, but it ends in hope. You know, it's just not, this is what happened. And this is why we're in the place that we're in. But you have, this is what happened, but we have hope. Um, and I want to close, Reggie, with you just talking a little bit about Nelson Mandela. Um, I was able to go to South Africa um, to speak at a women's conference and go to the Apartheid muse- Museum. Um, and I would just love you to share a little bit about that story. Uh, I, was, uh, I was honored to be at an event uh, that celebrated uh, Black history in South Africa. And uh, I didn't even know that, that one that I would have an opportunity to meet such an incredible uh, human being, let alone be able to sit at a table. Mm -hmm. But what I learned most about Nelson Mandela was um, the humility of the Mm -hmm. man. Uh, You know, he's he's the president of South Africa, not not to mention just a a legend in the, uh, the eradication of racism. But he was just like, what do you do? Uh, how do you do schools? Um, my my you know my my kids love you. You know he says my his kids are all the kids in South Africa. He goes they chant your name like they chant my name. Oh, you know he was he was doing that. And I'm like I'm like wait a minute, sir. You cannot put me in the same breath <laughs> as you. But he made he made me feel so comfortable that literally I have I have taken that small little mm. meeting that I had and said, I want other people to feel the way I felt about Nelson Mandela after I met him. You know, I want people to leave going, he was so humble. He was, he made me feel important. You know, I want, I want all that. And, and that's what guys like that and ladies do, you know, they, they don't look in a mirror to find out how to pat themselves on the back. They look out the window and they find other people to give credit to. I love that. Yeah, that's the kind of leader he was. And that's what I want to be. I love that. And I think that's what we could take away from this whole conversation is just helping others feel seen and feel yeah. heard and feel appreciated. Absolutely. Um, and that's what you do in the book and that's what you do with your lives. So I really appreciate that. And this is conversation has gone way too fast, but again, <laughs> the book is not so black and white an invitation to honest conversations about race and faith. So Reggie and John, thank you so much for being here. And I highly recommend this book. I'm going to be sharing it with others and I just appreciate you writing it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. We sure appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Trisha Goyer Show. I hope you received help and inspiration. That's what I'm here for. Now, remember, if you would like to submit a question, email it to hello at trishagoyer.com. And I can't wait until we connect again.